Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the Focus Groups. And we believe that you can be part of a Focus Group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week. So just a reminder, uh, here's the things that we have talked about thus far. Um, at Focus, we seek to make the church the best place to ask the most important questions. We seek to make everyone's journey a little easier today by a kind word, a simple service, or a stewardship of God's grace. We seek to facilitate many-to-many discipleship rather than merely discussion. We seek to encourage a unity of faith rather than a unanimity of thought and action. And we seek to accept our life circumstances, good and bad, as part of God's curriculum together with our community. And these are the five core values we've talked about so far. And, and you can probably see, that as you look at these, that a lot of these, this, this is why we do what we do. Why we focus on the groups and meeting in focus groups, meeting in small groups, uh, is because we believe that it's in the, that context that you have the most opportunity to explore the questions that are most relevant to your life. We believe that it's in that context that everybody has an opportunity to express the grace grace that God has given them and the gifts that they have, whether it be through a kind word or or a simple service. We believe that many-to-many discipleship is the the primary mode of discipleship, the one that, that gives us the best opportunity to reflect the fullness of Christ in our midst and not become too dependent on any one person's understanding, relationship, or vision of Christ. And, um, and that even when there is a one-to-many and one-to-one discipleship that does occur within our midst, it's all the better because we have experienced many-to-many and so we know the balance and the totality of who Jesus is or we have an opportunity to. Uh, we, we believe that it's in small groups that we can really share a unity of faith and still be diverse in our thoughts and our actions, that we really want to impress upon people that, that there's, we are not seeking a unanimity of thought and action. We don't all think the same way. Um, I was once again having a conversation with somebody this last week and just was reminded how precious and special it is in our, in our church that we really do have legitimately diverse opinions and ideologies and political stances and ideas and philosophies, and yet we're all seeking the same unity of faith. And what a, what a precious thing that is. It means that we can stay focused and we're not distracted, and that's awesome. Uh, we believe that, that that curriculum, the best part of our curriculum is our circumstances, our life itself. And what better way to explore that and understand that than to be able to bring that to a group of people with whom you live life in a small group and say, this is what's happening in my life right now. This is what's happening at my job. And so that is the curriculum for life. So all of these things are very difficult to see taking place in a, in a, in a group gathering, a larger group gathering in a service like this, where I do most of the speaking and, and you do most of the listening. It's very hard to see how all this would apply, but to see them in groups where we gather together. And that's why that is the emphasis of who we are. But there's one more. And this one more is really important. I think it really does kind of tie everything together. It brings us back full circle to what we called the great, well, we didn't call it that, but other people have called it the Great Commission, to what we acknowledged and referred to as the Great Commission at the beginning of this series, brings us full circle back to that. But before we do that, I just want to remind you, and, and I'll, 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 I've said this every week, but I'll remind you what this means, because again, we're wrapping up, and I want you to really see this to be true, that these core values They are three things for us. They are foundational. That means that this entire church, the structure, the way we put things together, the fact that we emphasize groups, even the way we do our Sunday night service, everything that we do is built, who we are, what we look like, 
the 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 meetings that I have with the focus group leaders twice a month, the the um, the focus groups themselves, the fact that we even do Zoom now, all of it is built upon the foundation of these core values, and so that that's just literally true. We we started this church with these core values, leading us to where we are today. Take these away, and we we don't function as we do now. But these core values are also expository. Because they're foundational, they will explain to you why we do what we do. And, and every question of why do you do this the way you do it can be answered with, with these core values, with these ideas. You know, why do we not do more ministries? Well, because this is our focus. This is where we believe discipleship happens. Why do we do the ministries we do? It all comes back to these foundations. And number three, they're driving. They're the things that push us forward. So what are we going to do in the future? Where are we going to go from here? The, what drives us, what moves us forward, what pushes us, what, when we do make changes, when we do make new decisions, it's all based upon these core values. So I just want to remind you, these are not just things that we like. These are not just philosophies that appeal to us. These are foundational. These are expository. And these are what drive us forward. And we've got one more. So we're going to get to this one more by taking a look at a verse that we've already visited, uh, a verse that is really important. It's Hebrews 12, verse 1, and it says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now, anytime you jump into a verse and it says, therefore, it does become relevant to ask, well, this is a conclusion of what? Right? Therefore is a conclusion verse. It means because of everything we've talked about before, here's where we are. We're going to look at that in a second. But before we do, let's look at what the conclusion is. The conclusion is that because we are surrounded by something he refers to, the author of Hebrews here refers to as a great cloud of witnesses. That's part of the therefore. We'll get to that. Because we're surrounded by like this, this, this incredible group of sort of accountability, these people who have shown us how to do it, who have testified to how things should be done, because we have these examples around us, just surrounding us, a cloud, he says, such a great cloud of witnesses. It's like we can't get away from them. We are surrounded by these people, whoever they are. He says, because of that, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So before we know what the author of Hebrews is talking about, and you're in church, you all have an idea where we're going here. But before we get there, what we see is that we're, the author of Hebrews is describing us as being engaged in some kind of effort, which requires perseverance. Being engaged in some kind of race, right? It's a race that we have to keep running. And it's apparently a, a bit of a marathon rather than a sprint because it requires perseverance. And we have to keep running the race. And there are things that can just sort of entangle us, the vines that along the road that can just kind of grab us or the weights that we might carry that can hinder us. There's these things that can keep us from persevering. There's these distractions that can, that can get in the way and we can look off to the side and then we're not going where we should be going. And, and so the author of Hebrews is encouraging us, this is an important race. Whatever this race is that he's referring to, whatever he's analogizing here, He's saying the finish line is ahead, the journey is long, and we need to get rid of anything which is going to make us less likely to finish the race. We need to cast off the sin, but not just sin, anything that entangles, anything that hinders us. It's important that we stay focused, if I can use that word here in Focus Church. It's important that we stay <coughs> persistent, <coughs> that we don't be pulled aside. And there are so many things which can pull us off our game and off our feet. And they're not all bad. They're not all sin. They're just things that hinder us. They're just weights that we don't need to carry. They're just things that, that distract us. 
But the core value, which makes all our other core values matter, is whatever this thing is that is this race. The core value that makes all our other core values in the list important is that there's something that the author of Hebrews says is so simple that at the bottom line, nothing else matters. If anything else gets in the way of this, get rid of it. Cast it off, whatever it is. It doesn't matter who, it doesn't matter what. Just lay it aside. It's interesting, you know, the nice thing about Scripture, we talked about Scripture a few weeks ago and talked about the fact that Scripture is just this incredibly profound, deep book. And when we don't treat it as such, we really miss out. And I really believe that. And that it's this incredible book of just ancient, ancient wisdom. Sometimes people talk about Scripture like it's modern invention. It's, it's just not. It's a book of incredibly ancient wisdom. And, and sometimes you might talk about it as, well, that means that it's archaic, but it's not. It's, it's wisdom that is timeless, is carried forward, and it's, and it's incredibly profound. And that means sometimes it's a little difficult, and sometimes it's a little complicated, and sometimes it, it, it's a little bit hard to understand. But what's really cool is that the core message is actually really simple. The core message, this race that we're running, that we're encouraged to keep running, the bottom line is really not complicated at all. And so that's why now we're in Hebrews 12 and he says, therefore, let's go back exactly one whole chapter. So we start in Hebrews 12, 1, and he says, because of something, we need to keep running this race. What is this something? Who are these witnesses that he refers to? And we see that at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, where it says this. Now, faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. And this is what the ancients were commended for. The ancients, whoever he's referring to here is the ancients. These are the witnesses. We're about to get a list in Hebrews chapter 11 of the ancients. Who are the ancients? It means people who came before us, people who ancient, who were thousands of years ago in some cases, hundreds of years ago. These are the ancients and these are the witnesses. And what are they witnesses of? Faith. Obviously something about faith because he says the ancients are commended not for what they did, what they said, what they believed, not for their great heroic acts. The ancients are commended for faith, faith of this confidence in something they couldn't see, this confidence in something that hadn't even come yet, things that they hoped for, a real conviction and assurance about things they couldn't even see, their ability, these ancients, whoever they are, their ability to believe and live their lives as if things they couldn't see were real is what they're commended for. That's a heroic act, according to the author of Hebrews. And it's a heroic act because we all know that struggle. The things that are right in front of your face, literally, the things at the end of your nose, the things that drop into your life, the circumstances that take precedence, these are all the things that most immediately grab our attention. And these are the things that inherently are easier to believe in. But the author of Hebrews says this is what makes the ancients stand out. Is they were not distracted and entangled and hindered by the things that were right around them, but they kept running a race and pursuing something that they couldn't even see. Men and women from Scripture who lived by faith, trusting in a God they couldn't always or even usually see, believing in promises that had been made but not yet fulfilled. And so the rest of chapter 11, it walks through 20 different specific heroes of faith, as well as nodding to literally all of the men and women of Scripture who looked ahead to the promises God had made. 
And if you go back and you read the stories of these heroes, you discover that their stories are a mixed bag. Because scripture is not afraid to show the clay feet or anything else of its heroes. Very few heroes in scripture are unblemished. Very few. And the ones that are listed in Hebrews 11 are particularly not the unblemished ones. So you look back sometimes and you say, what makes them heroes? What makes them witnesses? Who are they to hold us accountable? What should we be learning from them And every moment? And the author of Hebrews is very clear about this as he recites for each hero. He says of them, by faith they did this. By faith they did this. By faith this happened. Are there things in their life they did that weren't by faith? Yes. Yes, absolutely. But it's the faith that they showed. It's the overall perseverance to continue to believe in something that hadn't yet come. The promises that hadn't yet been fulfilled. The commendation is not for their actions, although some of their actions were noble. The commendation is not for their thoughts, although some of their thoughts were profound. The commendation is for their faith. For the fact that they believed in what they did not see. They were ultimately looking forward to something bigger than themselves. And the reality is the reason that they're heroes is because it wasn't easier for them than for us to believe. In fact, you could argue it was perhaps harder for them to believe for a couple of different reasons. But one is he gives a list of the kinds of things they endured, which let's be honest, most of us do not endure. He says this towards the end of Hebrews 11. He says, what more shall I say? He goes a list of these 20 and then he, and then he says this, what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped to the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the stone by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated, and the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. I, there's a little switcheroo that happens as you read through that, right from the author of Hebrews. He begins talking about all these victorious heroes, and you're like, that's the kind of faith I want to have, <laughs> right? I want to conquer kingdoms and, and quench the fury of flames and shut the mouths of lions. And raise people from the dead. But then as he goes forward, do you notice all that goes away? <laughs> He's like, oh, yes. And there were others who died in the flames. And there were others who, who wandered in goatskins and sheepskins because it was all they could get to keep from freezing to death or burning up in the sun. You know, they were tortured and they actually lived through the torture only to die. They faced jeers and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground they weren't heroic in the world's standards, and yet, he says of them, the world was not worthy of them. That's crazy. These are people described as heroic. Sometimes their heroism led to amazing events that would be enviable. Sometimes their heroism led to martyrdom, which none of us envy. And sometimes their actions weren't heroic at all. And yet, somehow, the author of Hebrews says that their faith is to be admired. 
Their faith is to be pursued. Their faith is to be followed. And we have their example in their testimony because they went through their lives and continued to believe. And then he says this in one of the most amazing verses, I think. In Hebrews eleven thirty nine through 40, he says this. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. There's so much about this verse, which is just kind of mind-blowing and, and a little bit difficult. But the bottom line is this. All of these people, we know, they're commended for their faith because they continued in their faith till they died. And part of the reason we know they continued in their faith till they died is because they didn't see the promise to come. And what is that promise that they were all waiting for? The Messiah. It was Jesus. They were all waiting for the Messiah to come and he hadn't come and he hadn't come, but they continued to believe he would come. They continued to count on that being where the real hero lay, not in their own actions, but in the great hero to come. They continued to wait, but then it doesn't just tell us about them and how amazing they are, that their faith held together. They believed in the Messiah to come, even though they hadn't received what had been promised. But then it tells us this other amazing thing. It tells us why God didn't bring the Messiah earlier. And he says to the people reading the book of Hebrews, it was for you by extrapolation also for us. So that the people who saw the Messiah come could be part of this. Something in the timing was there so that the people who saw the Messiah come could be part of this better thing. And so now somehow the witnesses who waited for him to come, those who were there when Jesus walked the earth, and those of us now who look back, we all are made perfect by the same Messiah. We all look to the same Messiah. Some look forward, some look at the moment, and some of us look backwards. But all of us look to the same Messiah, the same hero for the same things. The author is speaking of the good news that the hero has arrived and that he is here now, he says to the author, to the people reading. All those thousands of years people waited for this moment. And now here we are and we also wait for this moment. Leading us back to Hebrews 12, verse 1, where he says, Therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all these people throughout history who waited and waited and waited, we see, we're impressed by their waiting because they didn't get to see it. We actually get to see it. And that was true of those who lived in the time of the author of Hebrews, but it's true of us too. We now have the testimony not only of those who are waiting, but of those who have seen it. We have the historical reality to look at. And so he says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles all those things that they had, the persecution and the martyrdom, even the victories that they encountered, even King David, at times his kingdom was a hindrance to his faith. But he persevered. And they had all these things and they cast them off. And so we also are called to cast off anything that gets in the way of our faith in that Messiah to come. And he tells us specifically what that means. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the perfecter and pioneer of our faith. He's not only the creator of our faith, he's the, he's the one who will make sure that we finish in faith. See, the, in a, it's like the, the, the heroes before us ran the longest part of the marathon. It's like it's a tag team. And they ran the longest part of the marathon. And they were able to do it by keeping their eyes fixed on the horizon without quite knowing where the finish line was. It was so far away that they couldn't see the finish line. They couldn't see what it was they were racing towards. But they believed what they were racing towards was where they needed to be. And they ran the longest part. And then they passed the, the baton to us. And we now have a fixed point to keep our eyes on. We know what the finish line is. It's Jesus. We can see the finish line. We can see the flag. We can see Jesus. And in that way, he's not only the reason for our faith, but he's also the author and completer of it. We're not even asked to create in ourselves this strength of faith. The perseverance he speaks of is not to, to sort of have a sheer force of will to keep running. The perseverance is not that we simply have to drum up this faith in ourselves. The perseverance is simply to keep our eyes up. The perseverance is simply to stay focused on Jesus. That's the perseverance we're called to. Not the perseverance to figure out how to make it work or, or to always do the right thing, which the heroes of the faith didn't do, but to always keep our eyes forward. Not being distracted or hindered by all the things which distract but instead to stay focused on Jesus. Paul says it this way. It's essentially the very same message that the author of Hebrews gives, but Paul says it in his own way. And he says this. He says, I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He spends a lot of time talking with the Corinthians about what they're doing right and doing wrong and all sorts of things they should do and gives them all sorts of complicated ideas. But the bottom line is this. I'm just afraid, he says. I'm afraid for you that you'll be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He says, for if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough, meaning too easily. This is the same exhortation as the author of Hebrews. There are so many other things to lead us aside from the simple and pure and sincere devotion to Christ. There's things which appear good, different good news, says Paul. Other gospels, different views of Jesus. You're so eager, you'll take a different Jesus than the one that we gave you. Do you see how tricky that is? We can even just be distracted by just looking off to the counterfeit Jesus that's not at the finish line. Different views of Jesus, different spirits. We're too easily distracted. We too quickly put up with different views. The author of Hebrews and Paul are both encouraging us we have to be diligent and persevere in pursuing only Jesus. And this leads to our core value number six. Core value number six is that we seek shared devotion to Christ over devotion to focus. And I've added, or any other tribe, community, cause, or philosophy. See, I think there's a desire in us to be devoted to something. We need a purpose in life. We need to, we always have a cause. And causes are fine. But our greatest devotion always has to be, our simple and pure and sincere devotion has to be to Jesus. That is our core value. 
We are not devoted to our methodology. Even as much as I believe focus groups are the best way to do the things we're called to do at this time, we're not devoted to that. If Jesus shows us a better way to do it, we'll do it a different way. Because our devotion is to him. And what we want to create among the members of our church is this devotion to Christ. This is probably the most important core value and the most difficult goal. (laughs) If this isn't what we're pursuing, we're not running the same race that Paul's running, that the author of Hebrews is running. And yet, if we're really honest, we have to tweak this all the time, individually, personally. We have to re-examine, where are my eyes? What am I persevering, pursuing, rather? What am I devoted to? Jesus is very clear. This is where some of the difficult passages in Scripture come from. When he says things to people like, unless you hate your family, you can't follow me. He doesn't really want you to hate your family. He just means in your devotion, there's no other community, even your family community, that is more important than your devotion to me. There's no other devotion that's more important than your devotion to me. And the irony is that in a lot of churches, and I understand how we get there, I totally get it. As a pastor, your rationale is that, you know, I'm obviously every pastor in the world, if they're serious about what they're doing, they believe that the way they're doing church is at least the best approximation they can get to of the way to disciple people to follow Jesus. And it therefore follows on some level that you might begin to think the best thing I can do for people to get them to pursue Jesus is to make sure that they're devoted to this community and this church and this building and this way of doing it. There is a little line there that almost makes sense. Almost. The problem, though, is that when you have a group of people who are devoted to a church over being devoted to Christ, you're not just a little off the mark. You're now suddenly completely off the mark. The correction is easy, but the distance is far. Does it happen? Yes. Am I condemning every pastor to whom it happens? No, I would be condemning myself. But it's got to be clear in our heads that our goal can never be to conflate our devotion to this community with our devotion to Jesus. Do I believe that a certain level of commitment to this community is healthy for you? Of course I do. Do I believe that this community, because of our core values, has a good shot of helping you be devoted to Christ? Of course I do. I wouldn't do what I do if I didn't. But do I believe that the most important message to you in reality, in truth, in practice, is that I would much rather you be devoted to Christ and less devoted to us. Can you be devoted to Christ in a way which increases your commitment to your brothers and sisters? Of course. Of course you can. But it's got to go that way and not the other. Be devoted to Christ. Our goal is to produce devotion to Christ. Now, this has led, this core value, being as serious as we are about it, has led to some very unusual circumstances for us as a church. We have more than a few people in our church who attend our communities and another church. Once upon a time, I would have been threatened by that. And once upon a time, I would have even rationalized that it was not healthy, that it showed a lack of commitment. I don't care about those things at all anymore. I don't know that it shows a lack of commitment because frankly, if you have time and energy to go to more than one community, cool. (laughs) And if it's helpful to you, fantastic. And if it pushes you in your discipleship and devotion to Christ, then it is what you should do. So I don't care. And it is weird, 
right? It's a thing that other pastors don't understand. Why, why is that okay with me? Because I still believe that when you're here with us, we're pushing you to be devoted to Christ. What you do outside of that is, is what you do outside of that. And it used to, that used to be, it used to be, it, we seek shared devotion to Christ over devotion to focus, because I wanted to make that point clear, that our community, as important as we think it is, we do not want you to, to, to see yourself as a, as, as a member of this community. We want you to see yourself as a member of the body of Christ. And we want you to see yourself as, as, as committed to following Christ. And therefore, all those other core values we talked about make sense. And so you're engaged in that with this community. So that's why I said it that way. But, but over, since we first originally created this core value a few years ago, it's just occurred to me that it goes deeper. The problem that we have, that Christians have in America, goes deeper. We not only find ourselves devoting ourselves to specific religious communities, but we find ourselves devoting ourselves to all sorts of tribes, whether they're political or ideological or philosophical, even theological. That we find ways to, to, to become devoted to those other people, these other tribes, these other communities, these other causes, and these other philosophies, and they really aren't Jesus. Our devotion is not to an idea. Our devotion is to a person. Our devotion is not to a cause. Our devotion is to a Lord. And it's too easy to get that confused. Too easy to get that confused. And this is another reason why I think it's really encouraging to me. And it speaks well of our community. It speaks well of all of you that have built this incredible community that we now are part of. It speaks well of you and it speaks well of us. And, it, and it's encouraging that God has given us the grace for this, that we have people who belong to many other tribes within our group. And we don't all have to share the same tribe except this one. And when push comes to shove, our goal is that those other tribes will be less important to you, not than focus, but less important to you than Jesus. Christ, in fact, deserves our all. Scripture is very clear about this. And Scripture is very clear about this because it happens to be true. <laughs> Jesus is God. He is the king of the universe. And his glory has been shown in his gospel, which shows that he is this incredible God, not only of unfathomable power and awe, but of a love unlike any love that exists anywhere else in the universe. That all that we know that is good and just and holy and right and loving and gracious and gentle and kind is Jesus. He deserved everything. He deserves our devotion. And our lives themselves are best suited by recognizing that everything we've ever wanted, all of our longings that we've ever felt, are truly met in Christ. He not only deserves our all, he is all. He is all and he is in all, says Paul. Um, that's, that's the bottom line. And that's the, that's the message for tonight. I have a slide or two more I want to show you, but I just want to sit here for a second. That's it. That is, that is why we do what we do. You remember what we called the Great Commission at the very beginning of this series, which is when Jesus, he stands there and he says to his apostles and, and I think to actually many, many other people who are there, he says to them, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, right? 
I am God. You knew me as a human who was only under authority. You knew me as a human bound by the frail limitations of humanity. But guess what? I've come back from the dead. I have sort of, it says in Philippians, he, just, he saw that equality with God was not something to be grasped. He let his divinity go in a sense in order to serve us. But now he's come back from life and he says, I have regained, I have reclaimed with both hands the deity, the divinity, and the authority I have. And guess what? It is all authority. <laughs> it's not just some. It's not just most. It's all. There's nothing in the universe that I'm not in charge of, responsible for, and powerful enough to maintain, says Jesus. Now, with that in mind, I have something I'd like to suggest you do. <laughs> with the authority that I have, here's the authority I give you. Here's the delegation of the responsibility I pass on to you. Your job is as you go, and that is the correct grammar of the Great Commission. We often read it as go therefore, but it is as you go. As you go about your life, as you go about your day, as you go about your travels, as you go wherever you go, at any place you go, at any time you go, as you live, make disciples of all peoples. That's also the better translation than nations. All peoples, all tribes, all communities, all cultures. doesn't matter what race or creed or, or ethnicity or, or geographical location. If you're there, there's a peoples there. And you should make disciples of them. And how do you do that? By teaching them to obey at least 80% of everything that I... No, that's not what he says. Teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. Hear this. That's really what lo means. Hear this. I am with you always. This is what we are to pass on, to teach people. And again, you say, how on earth can I teach... The people everything Jesus commanded that would take a lifetime oh guess what also it is a communal command it goes back to many to many discipleship you cannot teach anybody everything Jesus commanded because you don't know it you haven't even learned it yet yourself right am I wrong about that of course I'm not I can't teach you everything Jesus commanded. I've spent 35 years going through the Bible over and over and over, studying it intensely. I know a lot of things Jesus commanded, but I don't know. And John even tells me I can't know because he didn't even write it all down. John's like, if I wrote everything down, it would have taken all the books in the world. I'm like, well, you could have made a better shot than that little tiny thing you wrote. <laughs> no, because the bottom line is we're just teaching people to obey Jesus. He can make the commands, right? We're teaching people to obey Jesus and we're teaching people that Jesus with them always. And that goes back to the point that our goal is discipleship. And it has to do with that many-to-many -many discipleship. And it has to do with making the journey easier for people so that they, they see the grace of God through what we do. And it has to do with opening the door for questions of every kind for us to explore together. And it has to do with recognizing those questions come from where we are in life. And that's the curriculum that God has given us. And it comes from recognizing our goal is a unity of faith. That is what the ancients were commended for, not a unanimity of thought. And all of this comes down to the idea that what we're really doing when we're making disciples is we're encouraging devotion to Jesus above all else. That's it. And when we think that it's our job to teach all the right things to think and believe, we're encouraging people at best to be devoted to us. And what we should be doing is teaching people to be devoted to Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why the church exists. That's why the groups are the groups are.
I want to talk a little bit about what's coming up over the next few months, and, and some of this will tie back. Um, I want to talk about the season of reflection and celebration. So last year at this time, we did a season of celebration um, and gratitude, I think we called it, but season of celebration. We, so here's the, the truth. Some of this is just me sharing my grace, right? We all share what we have, and I happen to be uh, the pastor of the church, so I get to give a little direction and vision now and then, and, and the truth is that part of who I am is that I am uh, madly in love with Christmas. I get it. I know that this season is actually especially hard for some people. I do. And I know that this season is, 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 can be difficult because of the darkness, because of the season, because of the events, because of your history, because of your experience, because of who is or isn't with you and who has been with you in the past or hasn't been. I get it. Christmas is not for everybody immediately a joyous thought. It is for me. I just adore it. And one thing I have noticed is that our culture opens the door for this time of year for people to worship something bigger than themselves and for people to rejoice and for people to celebrate. No matter how, right now in our country, polls tell us we are the least optimistic we've been in about a hundred years as a country, as a whole. Doesn't matter where you sit in the political spectrum, we're just all depressed. <laughs> And yet at this time of year, there is an effort made by our culture to rejoice. Not often knowing why or how, but it starts with Thanksgiving, which again, whether you like the holiday or not, the basic idea we're being encouraged for there is gratitude. And it starts with gratitude and it moves through this celebration of goodwill and love and this recognition that maybe some things are bigger than we are. Maybe community is important. Maybe there are things that matter. And so at, at Focus, we want to lean into that. We want to say, hey, the culture lets us do it. Let's just grab that and go with it. And let's see what we can do to celebrate together. But you can't force celebration, and we understand that. We're not trying to. So this year, we're calling it a season of reflection and celebration. And the hope and the goal is that we can, we can help each other in this season to reflect on the things that lead to genuine celebration. That's our goal. To tie this in a little bit to what we just talked about and also to give a nod to Halloween, which I think is still happening. See, I'm already in Christmas mode. I literally sent a message to my family today, a group text saying, hey, let's do this Christmassy thing. And I literally sent in that message. See, at least I waited till Halloween was over. And then one of my kids recommend, reminded me, Halloween's not happened yet. Um, but I just jumped right over it because I went to a Halloween party yesterday and I thought that we were done. Done. <laughs> But here's the thing, I will say a little nod to, to Halloween. I told you we're all filled with longings. I think all of us are. We are all filled with longings. There's things that we want. And I think our reflections often follow our longings, right? The things that we want, we kind of focus on. I wish this would happen. I want this to happen. I, I desire for this to happen. That becomes our longings. Jesus tells us I, he is the I am. You know, when Moses asked God, what is your name? Right? God said, go save the Israelites. And Jesus said, who do I tell them you are? I mean, Jesus didn't say that. Moses said, who do I tell them you are? Because they worship gods with specific names. They worship Egyptian gods that have names. What's the name of the Jewish God? The Israelite God. And God said to him, just tell them, I am. And there's a lot of things that means. I think one of the things it means is that God doesn't need us. He's independent. He just is. He doesn't have to be the God of something. But I also think it also says to Moses, and it also says to us, and, and Jesus seems to give a nod to this understanding of it too in the New Testament, it also means that whatever we need, he is. 
See, the other gods gave certain things. The Egyptian gods would give you sun, or they'd give you the water, or they'd give you the Nile flooding, or they'd give you, you know, the wheat that you needed, or they'd give you life. They'd give you various things. And I think God is just saying, I am all of it. Whatever you need, I am. So as we're filled with longings, when we say that Jesus deserves our all in all, part of the reason it's worthwhile for us to pursue him and worship him is because he is, in fact, the I am. Whatever your longing is, that's what he is. And that's why we're hoping that proper reflection this season can lead to genuine celebration. So rather than trying to force you to celebrate this year, which we've never tried to do, but, but just to be clear, rather than try to force you to celebrate this year, what we want to do is encourage you, give you things to reflect on that, that meet your longings, your deepest longings, to help you lead to celebration. And I'll just say this. Here's my nod to Halloween. What is Halloween about? Here it is in the middle of this. I, have, I happen to have uh, children who love Halloween. It's their favorite holiday. And, and what's it about, right? Because here it is. It's at the beginning. It is really the beginning of the holiday seasons, right? It's the one that kind of comes just a couple weeks before Thanksgiving, and we go from there. There's a lot of things about but I was thinking about why is it, what is the, and what, I'm not speaking for my, my children here. They can tell me what their appeal is for them. But, but I was thinking about what is the appeal of Halloween in general? What do we enjoy about it? It's most simple. And here's some things I think. I think, number one, there is a longing for magic. There's a longing for something sort of powerful and, 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 and something that defies logic, but is good. And I think there's a longing for magic, and we want that magic. And Halloween is a moment, again, when the whole world says, yes, let's play pretend. Let's dress up and be somebody else and let the magic of that take over. Let's believe in witches who can do amazing things and let's, you know, and all of that. And I understand and I'm, you know, I, I, I believe there, there are actually are demons and I think we should be careful about that. But I don't think most people engaged in Halloween care a bit about that. <laughs> I think there's just a longing for magic, for something not material. We're such a materialistic culture. Halloween is the beginning of this holiday season where we begin to celebrate things that aren't material, that you can't see. So we celebrate ghosts and we celebrate magic. And Jesus is magic. Jesus is the essence of everything we want in magic. He is that unseen power of the universe that holds everything together. Number two, there's a longing for pleasure. I like eating candy. People like eating candy. I know for some of my kids, Halloween is their favorite holiday because they want to eat candy. That's the bottom line. But even that, that, that sense, that pleasure, that joy that I get from chocolate. Chocolate's my candy of, uh, my, my, my candy of choice. Chocolate, and if you throw some peanut butter in there, can't go wrong. But, but, but this longing for pleasure, that, that, that feeling that you get when you eat it, and it probably does some things in your brain. That's what they tell us, right? I believe it. But it also does some things in your taste bud. It's just the whole thing is pleasurable. It's nice. It's kind of, pleasure is kind of magic if you think about it. <laughs> so there's this longing for pleasure. And I think Halloween is, again, a moment where we're like, we went to a couple Halloween parties, took my son Josiah, and my wife even said to him at the end of the day, she said, you got to eat as much as you wanted of everything you wanted today, and that's the whole point of a Halloween party. And he was like, amen, preach it. <laughs> It's so a longing for magic, a longing for pleasure, but there's one more. Halloween is a very communal holiday, isn't it? I mean, people go to parties. They don't celebrate in their homes. And they even leave their homes and do something 
that is considered these days rude and scary the whole rest of the year, and that's you actually knock on people's doors that you don't know. And then you ask them to give you stuff. <laughs> we usually call that, you know, begging and rude. And, or, or solicitation. We even knock on doors to say no soliciting. And we're like, give me candy. And they're like, absolutely. And for no better reason than you put on a costume. And I you know, want to celebrate this communal moment. So I think there's also a longing for community. I think Halloween, so I'm just saying, it's an example here. Where we have this Halloween, we have this longing for pleasure and magic and community. Our devotion to Christ, it'll be easier not be distracted by things if we recognize he is all of that too. So quickly, to add this to our list, and then I want to walk through our schedule of reflection and celebration over the next few months, but, but here's our, our list. Here's our core values. At Focus, we seek to make the church the best place to ask the most important questions. We all need that. What a great thing to be that. Number two, we seek to make everyone's journey a little easier today by a kind word, a simple service, a stewardship of God's grace. This is part of that magic. We believe that God gives every single believer in Christ a gift, a supernatural gift, a slice of his love and his power, which we can share with other people, and it will actually have power. We believe this is one of the best ways people get to know who God is, is by the grace we share with each other. We seek to facilitate many-to-many -many discipleship rather than merely discussion. This sharing of our grace works out in this idea where we all disciple each other. We're all responsible for it. We all have authority for it. We're all part of the Great Commission. It's not my job. It's our job. We seek to encourage a unity of faith rather than a unanimity of thought and action. We want to be the great cloud of witnesses for the next generation. They can come along and say, well, they didn't always think the right things and do the right things, but you know what? They pursued the right things. They believed the right God. We, want, we seek to accept our life circumstances, good and bad, as part of God's curriculum together with our community. Working together in our community, nothing becomes a distraction. Everything in our life becomes part of this progress towards devotion to Christ. What a great thing to be part of a community to help you remember that. To help make meaning of things that are meaningless. To help provide purpose to things that are purposeless. To help redeem the bad things into seeing God move us forward to the best things. And we seek to nurture a shared devotion to Jesus over devotion to focus. This is who we are. The only other thing I'll add about our core values is you do notice that they each begin with the two words, we seek. That's an acknowledgement that this is an ongoing process and not something that we have conquered. Understood? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if some of you are concerned about these core values is, yeah, but I don't always see that happening perfectly, then I would say, you're right. I don't either. <laughs> but that's why it's a core value. Because that's what we're re reaching for. And my job as pastor and the jobs of your focus group leaders is to do everything we can to, to provide a structure which pushes these directions to build a foundation, to build on this foundation, to make decisions based upon these, and to move forward with these. Good?
Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. 